The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Since the Columbine Massacre, there have been a total of 368 school shootings. And depending on the site you're looking at, according to Education Weekly, Since 2023, there have been 30 school shootings that have resulted in injuries and deaths. Our show today is going to address the helplessness, fear, grief, and rage so many feel. We're going to consider the warning signs of school shooters and propose that knowing them can actually save lives. We are so fortunate to have as our guest today, Dr. Peter Langman, the nationally and internationally renowned expert on school shootings. He'll be drawing upon years of experience, publications, and his latest book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Dr. Langman will be dismissing common myths and stereotypes and clarifying the three overall categories of shooters. In our conversation, we'll be discussing the targets, how shooters get weapons, whether or not video games are dangerous, the trove of online material that shooters can access, and the warnings and cues that are often overlooked. We will also consider why we often miss these cues and we'll offer examples of those who've actually picked up on the cues and saved lives. As a renowned expert, Dr. Langman's work has been cited in congressional testimony on Capitol Hill, and he's been interviewed by the New York Times, the Today Show, 2020, and 500 other news outlets in the U.S. and across the globe. His book, Why Kids Kill?, Inside the Minds of School Shooters was named an outstanding academic title and was translated into German, Dutch, Finnish, and Russian. After the Sandy Hook attack, the CEO of the American Psychological Association presented Dr. Langman's recommendations on school safety to President Obama. Dr. Langman has presented at both the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. and the FBI National Academy in Quantico. He has been an invited speaker at the National Counterterrorism Center and was hired by Homeland Security to train professionals in school safety. He maintains the largest online collection of materials relating to school shooters at, and here's his site, schoolshooters.info. There are 500 documents there totaling 70,000 pages schoolshooters.info. Dr. Langman has worked as a researcher with the National Threat Assessment Center of the United States Secret Service. And in 2020, he became the director of research and school safety training with Drift Net Securities. Dr. Peter Langman, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay. Now, let's start with... The idea that you say that we are all on duty 
And that previous school shootings teach us that perpetrators leave a long trail of warning signs as they move forward on the path to violence. Now, sometimes people pick up cues. Can you give us some examples of people that actually save lives by picking up cues and warning signs? Yes, there's a couple of favorite examples of mine because they demonstrate that concept that we're all on duty and that anyone who's paying attention could intervene and save lives. So one of these examples is there was a a mother attending her daughter's soccer game at a high school. And as she was sitting in the bleachers, she overheard two boys sitting a couple rows below her talking about their upcoming attack and that their attack was going to be something like another Columbine. And she became very alarmed and she didn't know these two boys, but she very uh, surreptitiously took out her cell phone and photographed them and then sent those photos to the school resource officer who quickly identified the two boys. They were pulled out of class, interviewed. They admitted that, yes, they were indeed planning to commit mass murder at their high school and actions were taken to keep them safe and to protect the school. So that was just a woman attending a soccer game who was not afraid to take action and that action saved lives. I think we should underscore that not afraid to take action, because so often that's the stumbling block. You know, we're afraid uh, we'll, we'll be liable for for some for accusing someone or we'll enter into harm's way ourselves. But over and over, and that's one of the many examples that you that you give in, in your book in terms of saving lives by noting warning signs. Um, let's. There's a lot of myths about school shooters, Dr. Langman. Um, who are these people? Are they typical school kids who sort of somehow are just enraged and get a gun? What can you tell us about the myths of school shooters and the reality? Well, there's a lot of misconceptions about who school shooters are. We may tend to think that these are the misfits, the outcasts, and the loners, And very often that's just not true at all. In fact, it's hard to say that there's been many shooters who were really true loners in in terms of not having any social connections. A lot of these perpetrators do have friends and some of them have dated or had girlfriends. They may play on sports teams. They're integrated into their schools and in their communities. So these are not kids who are detached with no connection. Now, it's hard to say anything about school shooters that's going to be true in every case. But generally speaking, these are not necessarily misfits and outcasts and loners. So that's one big misconception. And another one is that these are the victims of bullying and that school shootings are acts of retaliation directed against the kids who tormented them. And that is very rarely the case out of the dozens of school shootings I've studied, it's very rare that a perpetrator seeks out and kills someone who had picked on him. Mm. So if that's our understanding of the dynamics of school shootings, we're really missing the boat on that because that almost never happens. So the idea that school shootings are revenge for bullying is a misconception. The idea that School shooters generally are victims of horrible peer harassment is a misconception. 
Yes, there have been some cases where kids were certainly picked on and sometimes physically assaulted by their peers. But in some cases, the perpetrators have been the bullies, the -hmm. kids who went around and threatened and and intimidated their peers, maybe Mm -hmm. kind of shoved them around, um, had them living in fear, and so on. And then they took that harassment to the ultimate level and brought a gun to school and killed people. So the Mm relationship between bullying and school shooting is very complex. There's no simple line we can draw between a a victim of bullying and someone who becomes a school shooter. Mm. Now, one of the things you say is the other myth is they're not all white. They are mostly males. And let's talk a little bit about the age. The age is running from 11 years old to 62 and a half in terms of shooters, mass shooters. Right. School shooting is not a juvenile phenomenon only. It is a lifespan phenomenon. And of course, the school shooters in their 50s and 60s are anomalies, but they do happen. For the most part, it's juvenile and young adult uh, perpetrators. 20s, sometimes in the 30s and 40s, but primarily it is a younger phenomenon, but it does occur in people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s too. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking broadly about school shooting as a phenomenon and prevention efforts and so on, it's important to recognize it's not just teenagers. Okay. Now you say, and you just previously made the important point, These are not ordinary kids who are bullied. They are not kids who just spent hours playing video games, but they are kids with serious psychological problems. And you talk about three categories. Let's speak about that a little bit. Okay, based on my research, school shooters tend to fall into one of three categories. Now I need to say a couple things about those categories. One, They're not mutually exclusive, so someone could have aspects of more than one of the categories. And two, most people in these categories never kill anyone. So there's more to the story than saying someone fits into one of these three boxes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's many other factors, but I think it's critical that we recognize as a starting point in terms of our understanding that there are these three different categories of shooters. So to start with the first one, it's what I call the psychopathic school shooter. And for me, a psychopath in in this context is someone who is profoundly narcissistic, and they have no interest in things like law and morality because law and morality put limits on human behavior. They say there's certain things you're not allowed to do, but if you're so narcissistic as to be psychopathic, you don't want to have limits on your behavior. You think you're above the rules, that the rules shouldn't apply to you, or they don't apply to you, which means if there's no rules, there's no limits on what you can do to people. Another aspect of this narcissism is that they really don't care about anybody else. They're so consumed with themselves that there's no empathy for other people. There's no compassion for anyone because other people really just don't matter to them. So they're profoundly callous. But beyond just being callous, they're often very sadistic. 
So it's not just that they don't care if they happen to hurt someone, but they may derive a great deal of pleasure from mm. having the power to hurt and eventually kill people. There's a sadistic delight or thrill in that. So these are people without a conscience and without empathy or compassion who live for themselves and meet their own needs at the expense of others. Now, the psychotic shooter is different. Right. So first was the psychopathic. Second category is what I call the psychotic school shooter. And this is where the issue of serious mental health problems comes in. Because psychotic refers to things like hallucinations, most commonly hearing voices, or delusions, most commonly paranoid delusions, but there could be other types, delusions of grandeur. There have been school shooters who thought they weren't human, that they came from another world and were placed on planet Earth with people who were seen as their parents, but they weren't really their parents because they were from another planet or not human. So once you enter the realm of psychotic symptoms, you can encounter all kinds of things. But generally, it's auditory hallucinations and paranoid delusions or delusions of grandeur being the most common symptoms. And these perpetrators may be well aware that there's something wrong with them, but they tend to keep their symptoms to themselves because of the stigma against mental illness. So they may not tell anybody, not their parents, even if they're seeing a mental health professional, they may not reveal their psychotic symptoms. And they look around and it seems like everybody else in school is at least normal, if not happy and thriving. And they tend to envy their peers who are more successful than they are. And that envy can turn to hatred and that can turn to rage and violence. So I think an often overlooked motivation in school shootings is not to get revenge on someone who's hurt you, but to destroy the symbol of the success that you can't have, the people who are living the lives you wish you could live, but can't because there's something very wrong with you. Now, so, I, rem I remember hearing you differentiate these two groups and something you said really stuck with me. When and if they were caught, the psychopathic narcissist, he's writing letters to women who are writing letters to him in jail, whereas a prison... Whereas the psychotic kid or may or person is really often overwhelmed with a certain amount of guilt that something or some voice made them do this, and they are the most likely to try to take their own lives. Yes, their post-attack behavior is uh, fascinating to compare because the psychopaths who survive feel no grief, no guilt, no remorse, and they will try to manipulate people to get off as easily as possible, and they will come up with any lie to minimize their guilt. They sometimes go online and look up symptoms of schizophrenia or autism or anything they think is going to mitigate their sentence. Um, in contrast, the psychotic shooters do have a conscience and they do have empathy, and they feel profound guilt and self-loathing, and some literally cannot live with what they have done, and they try to take their lives in prison. Mm. Okay. 
Now, how, where does the traumatized um, youngster or uh, adult come in? Okay, well, when we're talking about the psychopathic and psychotic shooters, generally speaking, they come from what I call more or less stable, intact families. No family's perfect, but there's no significant dysfunction in the home. But when we look at the traumatized school shooter, the third category, what we find there are they come from chronically violent, severely dysfunctional families. And what does that mean? Well, in every case, at least one, sometimes both parents, is a drug addict or alcoholic. At least one, if not both parents, has a criminal history, sometimes to the point of incarceration. There's domestic violence that the kids witness. There's physical abuse against the children. There may be emotional abuse and neglect. Sometimes there's sexual abuse that occurs either in the home or in the community or in a foster home that these children end up in. So their lives are full of, you know, one trauma after another, one stress after another. Um, and they all end up doing what looks like the same thing. Kids from all three categories go to school with a gun and shoot a lot of people. But how they got to that point, the pathway that took them there varies dramatically across these three categories. Mm, okay. It's interesting, um, particularly for the um, psychopathic one, you give examples where teachers are swearing, this is a wonderful kid. Even if the kid has had a problem, I think he can get back on the right road so that you can see that picking out and identifying the school shooter is not such an easy thing. And that's where we, we want to look a little closer now. Where do most shooters get their guns? When we're talking about juvenile school shooters, in the vast majority of cases, the guns are coming from their own homes. So this is not a situation where they're going into the street, so to speak, and buying guns illegally or ordering them you know, from a website. Generally speaking, the guns are legally owned firearms that belong to their parents or grandparents or older brother, someone else, and the guns are accessible and the kids know where they are and how to get their hands on them. Mm -hmm. So this becomes an issue of firearm security in the home. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other things you say about, I guess it would be all of the groups, is that it doesn't just happen that suddenly they're shooting up things in school. There's a kind of pathway where the violence builds over time. Are there any indicators that a school community or that uh, someone could pick up as that progresses, that's worth us mentioning. Well, we can certainly talk about what's called leakage, when the students leak their intentions. And leakage takes different forms and can appear in different places. But basically, what it means is the student discloses or reveals his attack plans. And that could be to friends, it could be on social media, um, sometimes it's in a note that they pass to one or more of their buddies. And leakage serves different purposes. Sometimes the student just needs to tell somebody what he's planning. They want to brag about it or announce it. They may say, hey, it's going to be bigger than Columbine. I'm going to be on television. So there's that aspect of fame seeking, as we call it, wanting to make a name for themselves. 
Other times they want to keep their friends safe. So they were warn their friends, don't come to school tomorrow. I'm bringing mm-hmm. a gun, you know, right. in the cafeteria on Friday. And then they tell why. So sometimes it's to warn people. In other situations, they don't want to do it alone. So they try to recruit someone to join the attack. So again, leakage occurs for different reasons. But all of these are opportunities for someone to pass along the information and prevent that attack from happening. So leakage is really critical in terms of prevention. So as a nation, we need to do more to educate not just teachers and administrators, but students and family members and the general public about leakage and how to report it, where to report it, and so on. One area that you talk about that I really think um, was important is uh, homework assignments and assignments and the descriptions, the violence, the um, the hints that a process is unfolding that, the, you know, if, if an average teacher could be thinking, well, this is just a creative kid. I mean, look at the, some of our novelists who are always talking about horror and killing, et cetera. So what, what would you say to um, uh, teachers who might be seeing something that catches their attention in an assignment? Well, I think for teachers, it's important to trust their gut reaction because teachers read thousands and thousands of papers in their career. And if suddenly one paper makes them really uncomfortable, I encourage them to pay attention to that. Take a look at what that paper is saying that's causing that reaction and to share that with their colleagues or supervisors. Because warning signs and homework assignments tend not to be explicit, like the warning signs that a kid may give his peer, like don't come to school tomorrow because I'm being a It's not going to be that obvious. So people may question their reaction and maybe wonder if they're overreacting and so on. But that's one little piece of the puzzle. And if they pass that along to the administration, the administration may have received other such concerns from other teachers and they start putting the puzzle together. And yes, student assignments could easily contain violent content for all kinds of innocuous reasons. Maybe they're writing a war story, you know, or a police story and there's gunfire. But in the writings of some school shooters, it's not just violent content. It may be graphic and sadistic violent content. The mm-hmm. sense of finding pleasure, often not just in killing, but maybe in mutilating and making people suffer. Mm-hmm. And that's a different kind okay. of content. Yes. And sometimes it might just be bizarre content, especially from the psychotic students, as they're, you know, mentally they start kind of coming apart. You get some very bizarre writing mixed in with the the violence. And that could be, you know, another clue that this kid's having a tough time, we better intervene. Mm -hmm. I I like your suggestion that people don't have to do this alone, that if something catches your attention and you start to share it with other teachers and with the administration, you talk and we'll talk about, you know, a um, assessment threat team. Those those perpetuate in some way a sense of um, safety in a school because it becomes a vehicle for people to use when they are, for some reason, 
their attention's been been raised about a kid who um, they they might not have caught or they may not have seen in, in who's struggling so much. Um, we only have a few minutes. One of the things that um, the questions that people ask is. Um, what role does masculinity play in school shooters? Because we have a, or predominantly male. Yeah, school shooters are about 95% male. So we do see female school shooters, but obviously that's rare. So a lot of researchers look at the concept of masculinity, whether they call it a failure of manhood. I tend to use the phrase damaged masculinity. A lot of these perpetrators for multiple reasons, feel like they're not really fitting the idea of a successful male in our society. So whether it's being short, uncoordinated, a poor athlete, maybe you know very overweight, considered or feeling very unattractive, can't get a date, that kind of thing. A number of them have written about getting their hands on guns. And once they have a gun, suddenly they feel like the alpha male. Mm. And there's a lot of writings and comments from various perpetrators around that sense of gaining uh, status, enhancing their sense of self just by having a gun and then certainly by using it. And suddenly they're a force to be contended with. Okay. We're going to have to stop. That, that's a great point to stop at. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Peter Langman. He's the national and internationally renowned expert on school shootings. Um, he's drawing upon his years of experience um, and his latest book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. All of his information is at his site, schoolshooters.info. Stay with us. We're coming back with much more. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Join Rebecca Hall Greider every week for her new podcast, The Author's Journey. Spend some time getting to know best-selling expert authors, discuss and listen to their journey, and find out what works for them and what hasn't. If you're an aspiring author, you'll want to hear their amazing tips that help you in your own author's journey. Each program helps you discover your own gifts and bring them and your message forward. The Author's Journey. Listen for new episodes on the Voice America Variety Channel. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burroughs and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burroughs and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. Do you ever have an off day, or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired and contemplative thought showcasing experts in their fields including authors musicians and artists your host winifred adams will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter we want to hear from you 
Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking to Dr. Peter Langman, and we're talking about warning signs for school shooters And if knowing these signs give all of us an opportunity to perhaps save lives. Dr. Lamian, we were just speaking on the break about video games. What role, I mean, everybody's playing video games. What role do you personally think video games play in fueling the shooter? I mean, there are Columbine is the blueprint. It's a, and I was reading in your book that Columbine actually is a video game. So tell me, is there a copycat thing that can go on? How do you see the role of video games? Well, certainly there's what's called copycat or role modeling or a contagion effect. We can talk about that separately. With video games, we have to keep in mind a, a bit of balance. I once read a statistic that 97% of teenage males play video games, or maybe even specifically violent video games. Right. Obviously, 97% don't commit mass murder. Very, very few, statistically speaking, will ever kill anybody. So there's no simple connection between video games and school shootings, just as there's no simple connection between being picked on at school and committing a school shooting, because most people who are picked on and most people who play violent video games never kill anyone. That's not to say that it can't be a factor. And some school shooters or other types of mass attackers have specifically cited video games as part of their preparation for their attack. And they can serve two purposes. One, desensitization, that you get used to pulling the trigger, you get used to killing, makes it easier. And the other is simply rehearsal. You just practice taking aim and firing. So some shooters have made that explicit connection as part of their training, so to speak, to become a mass killer. They use video games to kind of build themselves up or psych themselves up or prepare, desensitize, whatever it may be. Those games can play that role for them. Mm, Okay. Um, Let's talk about just what you you were saying, I mean, we we both know the work of um, Grossman in terms of moral injury and that even in combat, um, the average male soldier has a hard time killing face to face. Yet these kids, these shooters seem to have no problem. In fact, they might have a target or a person that they're targeting, but then they go on to also kill everyone else in the room. What's different here? Okay, well, you're referring to, in particular, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's book on killing. Right. And it's a fascinating book because he documents how in wars for several centuries around the the globe, when soldiers are face-to-face with an enemy, they've had a hard time pulling the trigger. 
and often they don't. And he's emphasizing that even soldiers in combat who are trained to kill, facing another soldier who's trained to kill them, can't break the taboo of taking a human life because you just don't do that. And that raises the question for me of how is it that children in non-combat situations can walk into their own schools and gun down innocent unarmed people? And that's where at least partly my typology comes in of the psychopathic, psychotic, and traumatized shooters. These are not just ordinary kids. These are kids who are disturbed in various ways. But on top of that, there's often a lot of things that have gone wrong in their lives in the weeks, months, or years leading up to their attack, whether it's academic failures, school discipline uh, actions, um, arrest in the community, either dumped by their girlfriend or they can't get a date in the first place, maybe some peer harassment, maybe things are bad at home, whatever. So there's a lot of rage, anguish, depression, whatever it may be, building up in people who are already psychopathic, psychotic, or traumatized to begin with. And then maybe they're playing violent video games and they see movies or read about the Columbine killers and they take these people on as role models. So you get all these different factors playing into it. And I think it, we have to look at it broadly like that to try to answer the question, how can these kids do what soldiers in combat often cannot do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's now go to the the two components of threat assessment. We talked about leakage in what kids tell people in, um, in online material. Um, what about the, um, I think you call it attack-related behavior? So if a school was going to do a threat assessment or any of us were wanted an opportunity to pick up warning signs, one is leakage in terms of what's being said, what's being written. And tell us a little now about attack-related behavior as a cue for schools or individuals picking up the uh, potential attack. Attack-related behavior is of critical importance. And it's different than leakage because leakage means kids are thinking about it and talking about it, but people might talk about things they're never actually going to do. Mm-hmm. But attack-related behavior consists of anything that is related to preparing for and carrying out a mass attack. So that means they're not just thinking about it and talking about it. They are taking steps to make it happen. So that makes attack-related behavior a very urgent concern. And it could consist of all kinds of things, making a hit list of the people you want to kill. Sometimes the perpetrators will make a a no-kill list, the people they want to make sure they do not harm because they do have friends in the school. Mm -hmm. They have to decide how to get the weapons, guns, bombs, or whatever, into the building. What entrance are they going to use? When are they going to do it? Where are they going to do it? in the cafeteria, a specific classroom. There's a a lot of planning. They have to get their hands on the guns or the bombs, practice shooting the guns, practice detonating explosives, whatever it may be. All of this is attack-related behavior. So if any of this is brought to light and passed along to the school's threat assessment team, as I said, it's critical and urgent because it means these are not just kids who may be jokingly talking about Columbine and wouldn't that be cool or something. These are kids 
who are act- actively taking steps to make this happen. So if a kid told another kid, you know, I know where my dad's gun is and I wish I could use it. Does that qualify or would it have to be the kid saying, I'm going to start going to the range and practicing? For me, I would call the first example leakage. If there's the implication that he's going to use the gun in an attack. Um, just saying, I, I know where my dad keeps his gun would not be attack-related behavior. If the kid says, hey, I stole my dad's gun, or I, I stole the key to the gun safe, and you know I'm going to use it to get a gun on Friday to shoot some people who have it coming, or you know that kind of language. Okay, okay. Then that would be attack-related behavior. Okay. You, you have to investigate both, whether it's leakage or attack-related behavior. I'm, one is what people say, and the other is what people do. They're both critically important, but the attack-related behavior adds a level of what I call imminence to it. If you have a kid who says, I stole my dad's shotgun, and Friday at noon I'm getting revenge in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. you've got the time it's going to happen, the place it's going to happen, you know what kind of attack it's going to be, it's going to be a shooting, and you know the kid has access to the means to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Time, place, method, and access to means. That's a very imminent attack. Whereas a different kid might say, you know, sometimes I just feel like getting a gun from somewhere, I don't know where, and maybe going on a rampage or something. Well, that's very concerning in itself, but it does not have the evidence of imminence of the kid who already has a gun and knows exactly the day and time and place he's going to carry out the attack. So another important concept is what I call evidence of imminence, uh, because not all warning signs are equally concerning. One thing that you mentioned, and tell me if you think, and I'll listen, is do you think it's very important that there's a hotline that any kid or, or even parent could call if they were worried, given leakage or what they thought was attack-related behavior, would it be a good thing for every school to have such a line? Well, there needs to be a a line for kids to report anonymously somehow, whether it's school-sponsored, state-sponsored. A lot of states now have a statewide anonymous tip lines. If your state doesn't have that, and your school doesn't have its own like district-wide tip line, that is something to advocate for. Mm-hmm. And it should be anonymous because we want to make it as easy as possible for people to step forward. This is often very hard for people to do. So we want to make it easy. And we should all also have a variety of methods. It could be a telephone tip line. It could be an app on their phone. It could be a link or a portal on the school's website. You could even have the, you know, old-fashioned Dropbox somewhere in the office or in the school where you can just drop a little note in anonymously. Mm-hmm. The m- more methods and the easier it is for people to come forward, the more likely we are to get the information we need. Mm. One thing you say at some point in terms of handling risk situations is whoever is intervening has to ask more than just the potential shooter. 
I think you use the expression, if you're ready to kill someone, you're going to have no trouble lying. And some of these kids have really fooled everyone. They're so smooth and they're seemingly so wonderful in school. So what would that mean that a principal or guidance counsel or the threat assessment team would identify other children related to this particular kid with whom there has been some leakage or attack-related behavior? Well, if you think you're facing a potential uh, imminent danger, there's a lot of avenues you could pursue. And the kid may lie and deny or say it was just a joke, a misunderstanding, whatever. But you can't just trust that if lives are on the line. So a threat assessment could pursue multiple avenues. Talk to the students' teachers. Look at the homework assignments that have come in. Um, Talk to his coaches, anyone in the school who knows him, a guidance counselor, perhaps a school nurse, a school psychologist, there's a lot of people you could talk to. And you could also talk to his peers, because if anyone has heard leakage, it's most likely going to be the kids who know him. But you don't have to stop there. He may have social media that's publicly accessible, that may have all kinds of information on it. So you can look at social media, even if he hasn't posted explicit announcements, you may see photos of him with a gun or videos of him shooting. Maybe his parents don't know he has a gun. It's maybe not their gun, and they would be shocked to see that. Maybe he's posted a tribute to the Columbine killers in praise of them. You know, there may be all kinds of warning signs on his social media. So a comprehensive threat assessment can cover all kinds of things. Search his backpack, search his person, search his locker. If there's uh, enough evidence to justify it, have local police get a search warrant and look in his home, confiscate his cell phone and computers, uh, whatever. There's all kinds of things that if the threat is really significant, you don't want to miss anything. Hmm. So a comprehensive threat assessment should cover a lot of different bases. And I want to give you, you say that for threat assessment and threat management, you recommended Dr. Dewey Cornell's book, Comprehensive School Threat Assessment Guidelines, uh, Interventions and Support. It sounds like that would be an important resource. The, the other question I had, because there seem to be quite a few examples where, in fact, the leakage really did was the preface to a horrific attack. How often are the kids who are the friends or related to the shooter and the shooter says don't come to school i think it was on the date where they were going to celebrate columbine it was the 20th of april i'm not sure but um he said don't come um do historically and when you think about the cases is it the case most children who are told that do not go to anyone or say anything it's hard to gather data on that but certainly in many cases No one reported what they had heard. So I have a whole chapter in my book called Barriers to Action. Why don't people pass along the information? Whether it's students or adults, there's all kinds of ways we can rationalize not taking action. So I have a whole chapter on that because it's easy to say, well, I shouldn't get involved or I don't want to get mixed up in this or tell our kids that kind of thing. Right, right. But also keeping in mind how how young 
and small some of these students are who have committed attacks, mm. it's not surprising their peers don't take them seriously. You know, there have been 11 and 12 and 13-year-old shooters. Some are, you know, prepubescent. They're like four mm. feet tall. They're just little boys. So if they talk about shooting up the school, their kid, their peers are probably just going to laugh at them and say, yeah, right. You know, they think the kids are just trying to talk big and impress people. So they don't report it. Um, so in so many cases, there's been so much leakage that it's really heartbreaking to study it because they could so easily have been prevented if even one person started the process by passing along what they had heard. So, like I said, there's a lot of reasons people think it's not going to happen here. It can't happen here, not in our town, not in our school. These are good kids. We know the kids. I know the parents, whatever it may be. People talk themselves out of taking action. You know, I love one point you say kids don't want to be a snitch. And you, and you say, well, listen, are federal agents who discover a terrorist plot, do you think that's snitching? You know, this is something right like that. This is domestic terrorism. The other thing, so many times in the examples, the person who heard it is not going to do anything. And they mention it to someone on a phone in another state. That person contacts the police. The police then contacts it. It's interesting who along the line takes that step. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's impressive, but it, it seemed to have happened quite a few times that it takes a certain personality to feel, what do I got to lose? I got to inform somebody. Right. And one message to put out there, especially to the students, is if you have information that you don't share that could prevent an attack, and then the attack happens and people die, you're going to live with that the rest of your life. And that's a burden no one should have to carry. Mm. So, you know, if we can impress upon students the seriousness of this, even if they think their friend would never do it, um, you still need to report it. And one message to go along with that is whether it's for uh, students, teachers, parents, anybody, you know, it's not your job to decide if this kid's really a danger or not. Your job is just to pass it along to the experts and let them look into it. Right. And in most cases, it will not be a, a serious threat. It could just be a kid who was mad and said something he didn't really mean. But we don't know that if no one looks into it. Mm. So the message is, you know, you don't have to be the judge to decide, is this kid a homicidal threat or not? Mm. All you have to do is pass along what you heard mm. and take that burden off of people. When, what would you say is the percentage of school districts that have already have threat assessment teams? Do you have any data on that? I do not have data. I think um, many, if not most, still might not have threat assessment teams. There's a growing trend in states to mandate that every school have a threat assessment team, but most states don't have that yet doesn't mean individual schools might not have one, but the majority of states don't mandate it. So there's a growing recognition about the importance of threat assessment, but I think there's a long way to go. Okay. Do you think we have more school shootings in the U.S. than internationally? Yes. School shootings have certainly occurred in other nations, 
In one of my books, I look at 48 attacks, <clears throat> 48 perpetrators. 10 of those perpetrators are from outside the US in other countries. So it certainly happens elsewhere, but not at the rate, not the frequency that they occur in this country. What do you, how do you understand that? What do you think? I don't have a simple answer. I don't know that anyone does. You know, people have looked at gun laws and firearm ownership as potential contributing factors. Other countries have, you know, high levels of gun ownership, but they don't have this level of gun violence. Mm. Um, whether there's something different about their communities, uh, mental health services, or the lack mm. thereof, you know, we can speculate, but we don't have a, a really solid answer on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you were um, a parent, what would you advise parents and what would you advise our educators in terms of warning signs and the ability to somehow pick up cues that might save lives? Now, be sensitive to leakage and attack-related behavior. If you're a parent, it doesn't hurt to have some idea of what your kid's posting on social media. Um, and same for school. If you are concerned about a student, if their social media is publicly viewable, that could be valuable information. So don't overlook that. Um, and as I said, don't feel it's up to you to make the decision as to is this kid really right. a danger or not. Your job is just to pass along what you know. You see, I think I want to underscore, I think that that's so important. Not a teacher who sees an assignment uh, or a kid who thinks, whoa, something strange about his friend or his friend is saying something unusual um, or a, um, uh, you know, another person, the gym teacher or the bus driver. I think you use the expression, these are the situations where if you see something, I would say if you see something or you feel something, say something. And you are making such a good point. You do not have to do this alone. It's the passing on the worry and the data to others that really creates a safety net. Absolutely. And even at the school, no one person should be carrying the burden of doing a threat assessment. There should be a multidisciplinary team, an administrator, maybe a mental health person, if depending if you have a school psychologist, a counselor, social worker, et cetera. If you have a, a school resource officer, you certainly want law enforcement represented on your team, maybe a faculty representative and so on. So you can divide the tasks, you can put your heads together, collaborate, consult. So no one person should be doing this work al alone. No one person should have the burden of making a determination this should be a team effort. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as, as we wind down this afternoon, what would be a take-home message? I'm also going to ask you for, well, let me start by doing that. How can people find your site and your books? The site is schoolshooters.info, I-N-F-O, for information. You can learn about the books on the website, but you cannot purchase them there. They're widely available through online booksellers, whether Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or many, many others. So they're easily findable on the internet. Okay. And a, take, a very quick take-home message. I want to thank you for your years 
of focus and your um, ability to pull all this material together. It has saved lives. You have really touched so many people, Peter. It's it's truly a gift. Well, thank you. You know, my fundamental message is what we started with at the beginning from my book, Warning Signs. The theme, we're all on duty. And just one final example, how even if you're not involved in school safety, you could prevent a school shooting or other attack. Customer at McDonald's saw a notebook lying in the parking lot. He wondered who it was, picked it up, looked inside, saw that there were explicit plans to commit a massacre at their school. There were two students involved and it was very detailed. That person passed it along to the authorities who took action, found the two boys and intervened. That was just a customer in a parking lot. So we're all on duty. You never know where you might encounter a warning sign, social media, conversation, sitting in the bleachers at a soccer game, wherever it is, you know, we all have the power to speak up and prevent violence. Okay. I want to thank you and I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, as well as on all the apps for podcasts, iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon, Audible, etc. Remember to drop me a comment or question at Radio Host Phillips. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.